have you ever wished you said something differently than the way you said it? Like you're going to bed at night and you're like, man, I wish I didn't say that. (laughs) Well, yesterday something happened. And after thinking about it at night, I wish that I could have gone back and done this. Mm-hmm. I wish I could have said that. My children have all responded very well to that. Mm-hmm. It shows that you're human, you yeah. know, and it shows it shows that you're being accountable and it recognizes reflectivity, you know, and you take, I mean, kindness is important. Being diligent is important, but parents also want kids to be aware and to be reflective. Like, Hey, how could I do a better job? Mm-hmm. You know? And I think, I think at times when parents feel the guilt, bring it back the next day and see if there's a way that you can point it out to the children. Hi, I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide to seven parenting myths that we can safely leave behind, seven fewer things to worry about, subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Regular listeners will recall that we've been talking about the intersection of race and parenting for a while now. We opened by talking with Dr. Margaret Hagerman on the topic of white privilege in parenting, and then we heard from Dr. Alison Rhoda on white privilege in schools. In our third episode, one of my listeners, Dr. Kim Rybacki, and I interviewed Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, and we tried really hard to cover a lot of ground on both what parents can do to overcome structural racism and on how to talk with our children about race. But I was very cognizant of the stones that we left unturned that I really wish we'd had time to address. Now, I reached out to today's guest because I wanted to better understand his work on how historical figures are depicted in children's literature. And he responded, I should be on your show. And after I read his papers, I said, yes, you should. So Dr. John Bigford is here with us today. I just wanted to mention, though, that I'm re-recording this introduction because you'll hear in the conversation that we formulated an idea to develop some resources to help parents talk with their children about difficult topics like slavery and the civil rights movement. And we actually went ahead and did that. So each one is a short PDF that walks you through primary sources where these exist on each topic, as well as a collection of children's books. You'll hear Dr. Bickford refer to these as trade books. And if it's been a while since you studied history, then primary sources are things like photographs and posters of slave auctions and audio recordings of former slaves, which you might not normally consider as things to share with young children, but which Dr. Bickford has actually done very successfully. So the thing that makes these resources unique is that they use frameworks developed by the Southern Poverty Law Center for teaching young children about these topics. So it's not just a random collection of books and pictures and videos that we thought were interesting, but together they address what scholars believe to be the most important ideas on each topic. Things like the fact that enslaved people brought rich cultures and traditions with them that continue today. And that the civil rights movement was pushed forward by many, many concerted efforts and not just by Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. Primary sources do exist for a lot of these ideas, but where we couldn't find any, we supplemented with interesting secondary sources like videos. 
So if you're subscribed to the show through my website, you'll already have received these resources in the email about this podcast episode. If you're subscribed through a podcasting platform like iTunes or Stitcher, then I don't have a way to get this to you, but you can head over to this episode's page at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash teaching race to download these resources. So back to the interview, Dr. Bickford received his bachelor's degree in history, his master's degree in secondary education, and his PhD in social studies education, all from the University of Iowa. And he's now associate professor at Eastern Illinois University, where he teaches how to teach social studies at the elementary and middle school levels. His research focuses on how social studies and history education is taught at these levels, how students think about history, as well as historical misrepresentations within children's literature. And today we're going to discuss a ton of resources to help us teach children about topics related to race. Welcome, Dr. Bickford. Thank you for having me. All right. So we've started each episode in this series by both me and my guests stating our privileges. And so my guests have heard mine a number of times right now. So I'm going to state these quickly. Uh, these are my whiteness, my economic status in the upper middle class, heterosexuality, able-bodiedness, and my education. And I was actually also reminded by one of my Instagram followers last night that I should acknowledge the Native Americans on whose land I sit. And those are the Chochenyo Ohlone. And I actually pay the Shumi tax, which is a donation that's acknowledgement of this land used to belong to these people and was taken from them. So I wonder if you could begin by telling us some of your privileges, please. Well, uh, it would be whiteness and uh, upper middle class socioeconomic status. I'm a heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied white male. I benefited tremendously from having two parents with college degrees and a grandfather who was a college professor. So education and enriching experiences like museums and concerts were something that I kind of grew up with. I also have the privilege of being physically larger and more athletic than most folks, but my teenage son would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> and since you mentioned about the uh, the First Peoples or Native American land on which you're sitting, mine would be of the Mississippian culture or the Cahokian culture. Oh, wow. And you must know that off the top of your head because I added that <laughs> after I sent you the question list. I Yeah, yeah, that was not on the list. But one of my favorite passions as a child and as an adult now still with my own reading is about uh, the native peoples of North and particularly Central and Southern America. I really, really enjoy that. Oh, yeah, super. Okay, well, I'm, we may get to talk about that a little bit more in the interview. Sure. So I wonder if we could start out by talking a bit about your work. Can you tell us what kind of books you study and how you study them? Sure. Generally speaking, I, I study the texts and tasks that best facilitate historical reading and thinking and writing. These are the sources and strategies that get kids to think historically, not memorizing historical dates. That's historical comprehension. But real historical thinking is um, looking at different sources and figuring out what actually happened, like a detective at a, at a crime scene, so to speak. And invariably, that involves the texts that include the curriculum the parents and teachers choose and use with their children and teenagers. And uh, from an educational psychology standpoint, I spend most of my time on elementary children and some children in the middle grades. If you were to think of it as like a Venn diagram with one circle being what the experts know, the historians, the archaeologists, the anthropologists, and then the other circle being what's included in the curricula. <laughs> textbooks and trade books. Those things overlap I, in some way? <laughs> in some ways they do. <laughs> I explore the areas of convergence and also particularly the divergences mm -hmm. between historians and children's authors. I don't get too much into the historical quibbles 
or the nuances. I try to focus on what I consider important big picture aspects. Mm -hmm. Like, is this accurate, but also age appropriate? You know, would you expect this? Could this be taught to a five-year-old? Could this be taught to a Mm 10-year-old? Things like that. Yeah. We had uh, a fair bit of email conversation before this episode, and I was looking for a blog post that's actually will have been published by the time this episode goes out on what we should learn during Black History Month. And so I asked Dr. Bickford if he knew of any online resource that actually presented an accurate view of Lincoln rather than this uh, not quite accurate version that a lot of us understand. And he kind of said, well, historians get over these things when they do an undergraduate degree. So no, there's not really information out there because they don't have a reason to put it out there because they just know it's not true and they don't really speak to lay people. And I I was really interested by that. And I'd never thought about the resources that are available online in that way before. It really is remarkable, but it's kind of like this idea. If you were to ask a hundred folks, when did Native Americans start to inhabit North and South America? Mm -hmm you'd probably 95 of them would say something like about 10,000 years ago, mm-hmm. they walked across the Bering Strait. And since then they populated North and South America. The five people who wouldn't say that have background in archaeology or <laughs> historiography or anthropology. Okay. Don't tease us like that. Give us the answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to know, but they know that it can, they came over in more than one wave and they can do this linguists. Linguists, by evaluating the different patterns of languages, mm-hmm. and people disagree to degree, but uh, um, it's anywhere from four to six different language groups that are in the North and South America for Native Americans, and they assume it was in these four to six different waves because mm. presumably there were small small tribes that walked across. And linguists may disagree you know, here and there on the small aspects, but the most logical answer that most people would agree with is that it, it was probably multiple groups, mm. probably starting somewhere between 25 and 35,000 years ago. And probably the last one was maybe 10 to 15,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that's, and I just mentioned the, the linguistic evidence, but there's also a lot of contemporaneous evidence when it comes to spears and in bison and woolly mammoths and things like that, spearhead points and things like that. Yeah. It's a whole lot more complicated than what I can just convey in a <laughs> in a short answer here. Yeah, for sure. I didn't realize your expertise extended to that area. We've been talking a lot about slavery and Lincoln and <laughs> I didn't realize that was your one of your primary interests. Actually, my primary interest is what I call is, is what historians call the Black Freedom Movement, from slavery till beyond uh, the traditional civil rights movement. Mm, okay. um, Native American history is just it's something that I'm deeply fascinated by, but I I haven't taken too many courses in that. I just read it on, on my own. It's a hobby. Mm, okay. It's a hobby. But I have done some research on it. Super. So let's get back to that Venn diagram that sure. you mentioned. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to quote from one of your papers. It says, trade books, potential and popularity give a false impression of their curricular soundness. And so I, firstly, I wonder if you could just briefly define what trade books are for us. And then secondly, what are some of the more egregious examples that you've seen where historical events depicted in these books are just plain wrong? Sure. Trade books are uh, biographies, narrative nonfiction, historical fiction books, books that parents buy for kids over Christmas break and summer break. They're distinct from textbooks, which try to be comprehensive. With textbooks, and I mean, it's kind of there's lots of different ways to look at textbooks, but uh, you know, you can't cover everything. 
if you have to cover from Columbus to Lincoln, you know, in 300 pages, you can't cover everything, but it's the trade books. It's the biographies of Rosa Parks. It's things like that. It's the biographies of Abraham Lincoln that I'm most curious about because they're presenting themselves often as nonfiction. Mm. And that's what I mean by trade books. Some of the most egregious examples, the two most common are phrases like Hitler brainwashed, Mm. you know, where about 40% of the books will actually use that word brainwashed. For one of my articles, I, I reviewed about 50 books, maybe 60, I forget, all related to, all centered on the Holocaust. And I couldn't get over how often that term was used. <laughs> I mean, that's a lie by commission where they totally intended. They picked that word. Mm -hmm. There's also lies by omission, where if you were to ask most folks how many people were killed during the Holocaust, you know, the industrial genocide that took place in Germany, then that's just acknowledging that there were many other genocides. But uh, most folks would say that 6 million Jews were killed. And that's partly true, but it's only about 60% of the answer. Mm -hmm. 11 million folks were killed, 6 million of which were Jews. Now, that's a lie by omission. It's a lie by omission. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if the word lie is right. Perhaps misrepresentation is better. But in my mind, if you're if you're an author, you should know this. You know, the, the information is out there. There's others, though. I mean, phrases like Columbus discovered. Mm -hmm. That's in nearly all of the trade books. Nearly all of them use words like discovered. Mm -hmm. And that's a complete lie by commission where the the author intended that there's other lies by omission like what were the names of the folks he encountered you know they were the tainos which was a part of the arawak tribe a part of the larger carib nation and i mean this information is readily available it's just it, it doesn't always filter in it's not that the details are the most important but these are two simple ways these are two simple ways of pointing out like the textbooks and the trade books really shouldn't be trusted even if they say nonfiction because they're getting some of the most basic aspects wrong there's a whole lot of others that i can articulate and that i try to explore in my research but those are the most basic most obvious mm -hmm. i wonder if i could say some of my favorites from your research sure <laughs> Sure, I'd love so to So that there was one book that you looked at that located the Emancipation Declaration before the Civil War. <laughs> so I think the it was saying that the the slaves were freed and and I, I assume it was all slaves were freed. <laughs> I think that's a point that you make as well that not all slaves were freed by the Emancipation Declaration and no. and this actually happened before the Civil War when in reality of course it happened afterwards. You read a whole lot of books on slavery and what that experience was like for slaves or enslaved people we should probably say. And I think in all but two of the books that you read on this topic the enslaved people secured their freedom. By the end of the book, they were no longer enslaved. And in yeah. reality, what was the likelihood that that could have occurred? I mean, less than 1% if you mm -hmm. count all the generations. Yeah. Yeah. It gets, and this is where these lies, there, uh, James Lowen wrote a famous book in the 1990s um, about textbooks called Lies My Teacher Told Me. <laughs> It is remarkable the garbage that gets passed off. The yeah. myths and the fables are so prominent. 
It's like Betsy Ross. Everybody thinks that Betsy Ross sewed the American flag. And if she did, she never characterized it in her, uh, in her diary, which she kept for decades. Mm. You know, it was literally fabricated by her ancestors. Mm. It's the same thing with Lincoln. The Emancipation Proclamation, which was during the Civil War, didn't free the Northern slaves. Yeah. It only targeted the Southern slaves. It wasn't the slaves in the border states that were still a part of the Union or the Northern states. You know, it's, I live in Illinois. It's kind of like the idea of Illinois was a free state. Yeah, but African-Americans couldn't have residence here. Mm-hmm. They couldn't actually live here. It was a free state in name, but they weren't allowed to be here unless they were a slave. Mm-hmm. And that's where the more you get into it, the more complicated it is. Yeah. So it's obviously difficult to convey all this in a book geared towards a five-year-old. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> and so I think we've covered some sort of some of the egregious things, examples where the, what's in the book is just plain wrong. But there are a lot of examples where when something isn't just wrong, it's not exactly right either. And so I think when you looked at trade books looking at slavery, they basically don't acknowledge that slavery was a violent practice. There is no sort of ill treatment <laughs> of African-Americans oh, in, in slavery, that families weren't broken up. And also, slavery didn't really go away after the Emancipation Proclamation, which I didn't know. It, it just sort of turned into a different form. So it seems as though the books present this kind of sanitized version of history where, oh, yeah, there was an Emancipation Proclamation, all the slaves were freed, and now everything's great, and African-Americans have exactly the same rights as white people do. Is that your impression as well? Absolutely. And it's not just an impression. It's not just an opinion that's based on a a careful review of 50 randomly selected trade books. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the vast majority of trade books skip the violence. They skip the degradation and inhumanities. And I'm not talking just about starvation or ill-clothed enslaved African-Americans. I'm talking about selling the threat of separating families and selling folks down South. I'm talking about, you know, the sexual violence. Now I'm not encouraging that that gets communicated to kindergarten or second graders, but when you reduce slavery to an exchange of free work for uh, free food, you know, and slaves lived in houses <laughs> and the, the slave owners fed them, but the <laughs> slaves had to work. It almost makes it seems like it was a capitalist exchange. Right. And it would be like, can you imagine if you were to read a book that reduces the Holocaust to Nazis bullying Jews? Yeah. Can you think about that? Like, you know, Nazis bullying Jews, not Germans, but Nazis. It doesn't place the blame on Germans, but Nazis, mm-hmm. you know, it places the blame on, on 1% of the population. So many of these books, even the expository or narrative nonfiction books, they talk specifically about slave owners, slave owners, slave owners, but they don't talk about all of the people who benefited, mm-hmm. you know? And when you think about the, the textile workers up in New England, when you think about the shipbuilders, when you think about the iron makers, you know, the people who made the chains, when you think about all the people who profited from the middle passage mm-hmm. and the triangle trade, and then you think, well, less than, and many, many of the books say things like less than 1% of the American population owns slaves. I mean, by implication, that's that 99% weren't bad. Right. If slave owners were bad and only 1% owned slaves, then slavery wasn't that ubiquitous. When in reality, it was touched upon in in every major historical document that the United States had. It's so misrepresented when you get the, well, there were some bad slave owners, but not Washington, Mm -hmm. not Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln always wanted to free the slaves. 
you get these myths that are created and that's, it, that's just not the case. Yeah. It's either lies by omission or commission. Okay. So let, let's just dwell on that for a little bit, because I think it's something that I, I obviously I didn't grow up here. And so <laughs> I'm going to tell you my knowledge of American history has come to me since I came to the States because in England, we don't study American history because there isn't enough of it. <laughs> So my impressions of this may be a little different from people who have lived here for a long time. But I think the general impression of Lincoln is that he believed slavery was wrong and he freed the slaves because he believed that slavery was wrong. Can you, using your (laughs) knowledge of history that is obviously far greater than deeper than mine, just kind of set me straight there on what's wrong about those things? Well, a lot of see, and I mean, you usually fables and myths. There's always some element of truth. Lincoln did talk as an adult about how he witnessed some uh, experiences, how he witnessed some slave trading, both when he was in either Indiana or Kentucky. He lived nearby a common slave trail where they would take slaves south to sell. He lived nearby a major passageway. And then one time he rode a riverboat after he was in Illinois for a while. He rode a riverboat down south. I think it was in New Orleans where he actually saw a formal slave market. And as an adult during the war, he talked about these experiences and how it was wrong. And he used those as justification in many ways. So there is some evidence of truth that Lincoln recognized the inhumanity of slavery. But the reality is when he was an attorney in the 1840s and things, he didn't work against slavery. Many times he was the lawyer defending slave owners Mm. when they bring slaves into the into Illinois, and um, they'd say, hey, it's slavery's, you know, this is a free state. I should be free. He defended slave owners' rights. Mm. He very publicly criticized a New York elected official who voted, who argued for enfranchising African Americans, free African Americans during the 1850s, who voted for enfranchising free African American males. And he was very vocally opposed to that. He ran on his, his election in 1860. He ran opposing ending slavery. There were radical abolitionists who wanted to end slavery. And then there were incredibly radical abolitionists like John Brown, but Lincoln wasn't one of them. He was more of a policy of containment. Like, let's keep it down South. Let's not let it spread. And eventually we'll grow out of it, kind of. I'm paraphrasing here, but that was Lincoln and also Thomas Jefferson. But, um, you know, he, he didn't run to end slavery. And when the war started, because of his election, he also didn't immediately condemn slavery or work against it. He promised the folks in the border states and up north, hey, look, if you've got slaves, I'm not going to take away your slaves. This war isn't about slavery. Hmm. You know, later for pragmatic, political and military reasons, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. But it wasn't because he, you know, he had this idealistic cause, like, I got to do this for the slaves. This wasn't a win one for the Gipper sort of thing. That's a football reference. I apologize. But uh, this wasn't anything like that. It was a very pragmatic choice. Like, well, I guess I'll do this, Uh you know, and and I'm not saying it was deeply held. But if Lincoln were alive today, you know, and if you were just to look at Lincoln's comments that he made, like he talked about maybe when the war is over, we can send them to Central America. Yeah. Maybe when the war's over, we can send them to Oklahoma or the American West. Lincoln would be considered a segregationist today because he didn't think that free 
former slaves, former enslaved African-Americans could live with their former masters. Mm -hmm. He would be considered a segregationist if you take him at his words. Yeah. I read a source, a a speech of his where he's addressing some uh, some African-American leaders and he's saying, basically paraphrased, it's your fault that we white people are having this conflict among ourselves. And if you would just leave, then we would be okay. Yeah. The back to Africa movement and the blame Africans for African slavery. Absolutely. And this is why historians, they absolutely distinguish. If you read a historical text, they'll distinguish and and they use the phrases often, not, not all the time, African slavery versus chattel slavery in America. And chattel slavery was this, you and your dependents are forever enslaved, you know, from now until the end, you know, where it was just a continuous thing where African slavery was nothing like that. Mm -hmm. African slavery was nothing like that. And you mean slavery that existed in Africa before white people went there? Yeah. Slavery that existed in Africa for decades. Biblical slavery was not American chattel slavery. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to go back to something you said about, you know, the violence of slavery and the sexual exploitation of of slavery and that you don't advocate for teaching children, young children about that. But I'm curious about what you think children are ready to start hearing about the violence and what really happened during this period. And also, you know, more recently in the civil rights movement in the last century, how should teachers and parents present this information so that what they're showing is age appropriate and developmental? appropriate, but still accurate. Sure. The first thing I would say is that teachers and parents should always use their best judgment. There's nothing about common core. And I know of no state curriculum that says kids need to be terrorized when they're in kindergarten (laughs) about stories of old slavery, Mm -hmm. you know, in America, there's nothing that says that. But when a teacher or a parent feels strongly about introducing the concept of man's inhumanity to man, you know, of, of humankind's inhumanity to to other humans. I think they should do so very carefully, very deliberately, and in age-appropriate ways. And I think it should be done as soon as the topic's introduced. You wouldn't expect a a first-grade teacher to say, okay, we're learning about addition, so every answer is more. Because every time you add, the answer's more. So seven plus two, and all the kids chime in, more. Eight plus three, more. Mm -hmm. Nobody would do that saying, well, we'll teach them the wrong way now so they can learn the right way later. No one's going to teach them that when it comes to math in first grade. The same thing's true of social studies and history-based topics. If you think it's appropriate to include it now, it can be done, but it can be done in age-appropriate ways. And one of the ways that I encourage is iconic PG version images, okay? And they're readily available at the, the National Archives or the Library of Congress, things like that. You mentioned civil rights. Take the march on Washington. So often it's reduced to a few lines about Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. But what if the teacher were to show an image of the signs that folks carry during the march? First graders would immediately recognize that the signs are titled the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And immediately, they'll start asking, well, what about the jobs and what about the freedom? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the teachers can introduce, now this is a very abstract concept when it comes to social segregation, political segregation, and economic segregation, but it can be reduced in very concrete ways 
for young learners. Social segregation, like separate drinking fountains, that's very, you know, the back of the bus versus the front of the bus. That's very obvious, you know, forms of social segregation. And so often uh, the civil rights movement is reduced to that, you know, where it's separate drinking fountains, but it's more complicated than that. When it comes to the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, and any first grader can read those words, the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Okay, that right there is a catalyst to get teachers or parents to say things like, well, in different parts of the South, you couldn't be a physician or a lawyer or an engineer if you were black. And the idea of introducing economic segregation because of jobs they couldn't do, that is a very easy way from showing one image of one sign from the March on Washington to complicate our understandings on the March on Washington and Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. Or when it comes to freedom, that's a little more abstract, but they were referring to voting Mm -hmm. and enfranchisement, political segregation, you know, what historians would call it. Now, you wouldn't use that term with five-year-olds, but saying, hey, should everybody get to pick? When it comes to what you do during free choice time, when it comes to what you do during recess, should everybody get to pick? What they get to choose? Mm -hmm. If we all get to vote, should everybody get to vote? Yeah. Those are tangible ways to introduce this to five-year-olds and seven-year-olds and 10-year-olds just by showing an image of a sign that says the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Mm -hmm. And just like when you go into the sites in Washington, D.C., and everything's free, you know, in the National Mall. The Library of Congress and the, uh, the National Archives have an array of sources that are all very, very free. And, you know, especially when you use the picture functions, five-year-olds, eight-year-olds can absolutely access this information. Now, this is just one example. But what if you were to show something like take civil rights, okay? Um, and Emmett Till, when he was lynched in, if I remember right, 1954, maybe 55, I forget, he... Uh, I'm not saying that you show his disfigured lynched body to little kids. I, I I taught seventh grade for nine years, and I'm not sure I would show that to seventh graders. And they could view PG-13 movies, you know, just by their age. I mean, but that is a terrible, terrible thing to show. And I'm not advocating for that. But to show the violence that was depicted here or the anger that was depicted here, why not have a photo of African-American teenagers and college students sitting at lunch tables getting food dumped on them? by jeering white Americans standing behind them or of African-American kids walking to school, little girls, Ruby Bridges, walking to school to desegregate a school and seeing adults screaming at them Mm -hmm. and spitting at them and raging. Why not show that? You can show PG versions of, of hate. And I know a lot of folks will say things, their initial response might be, I can't show my kids that. But think of Ursula in The Little Mermaid. Pick your favorite. I mean, I mean, she exemplifies jealousy and <laughs> anger and rage. Pick your favorite Disney movie. Yeah, they're Five pretty bad on the <laughs> fairy tales in general. <laughs> yeah. Five-year-olds can understand rage when it comes to Disney, you know. And these are ways. Your question was about how do you introduce this mm-hmm. in age-appropriate ways that matters. Because you don't, you know, it's kind of like the Hippocratic Oath. If for physicians, do no harm. That should be your first rule. I'm not saying the goal is nightmares and tears, but there are age-appropriate ways to introduce the idea of hate. There are age-appropriate ways to show anger. There are age-appropriate ways to show mistreatment. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. And I think that images, using historic images can be so powerful. I remember just recently when I was researching this, coming across a photo, it might have been of Ruby Bridges or, or of one of the other early African-American children's going into a school and seeing the white mothers just furious and screaming. And, you know, they, if you take away the fury and the screaming, they're these decent, you know, (laughs) white people who you would think, oh, they have the perfect lives and the perfect family. And you could imagine them in their kitchen, cooking dinner for the family every night. And just that juxtaposition of, and I guess the incongruity of where you typically in the picture you have in your mind of that white fifties housewife and put her in this environment where she just does not want this African-American child to go into her school where her child attends. It was just mind boggling to me. Yeah, absolutely. But that was reality then. That was, and it's terrifying to think, but the, Get this. And this is why it's so important to teach this because I can hear some parents, I can envision some parents saying, why do this now? That Mm. was then. This is now. Mm. Did you know that American schools are more segregated now than they were then? (laughs) By the time your episode goes out, my listeners will know this. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Think about this. Schools were more segregated now Mm -hmm. than they were then. Yeah. And And that's not my opinion. That's based on the facts. Yeah. And a lot of it's through gifted and talented programs where it's sort of social segregation within schools that are otherwise sort of nominally desegregated because anyone can attend. But once you walk in the door, all the African-American kids go in one class and all the white kids go in another class. Even more so than that, when it comes to the actual schools, not just the classes, but the actual schools. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful book called uh, The Resegregation of America, where the author explores these facts. Mm -hmm. And it is not disputed. Among the experts, among the educational sociologists who study the sociology of education, it is not disputed that American schools are more segregated now than they were 50 years ago. And it's because of things like white flight, Mm -hmm. you know, and the suburbs. And the more you, you know, the urban areas and certain parts of certain cities are definitely black areas and the idea of local schools and this phrase local control, it's a euphemism for protect my own and let's find a way to privilege our kids like I would like to be privileged. Mm -hmm. We are indisputably more segregated now from a school standpoint than we were 50, 60, 70 years ago. It's crazy to think about, but that's the difference between, you know, hidden segregation, like what's happening now when it's local control versus explicit and obvious and de facto segregation, Mm -hmm. like white school only, white children only, phrases like that. Yeah. It's uh, more insidious now and more embedded as well, it seems. That's the right word, insidious. I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> you can use it next time, don't worry. <laughs> I will. I will. So I want to talk a bit more about the books because I, I think sure. that that is a, a really common mechanism that parents and teachers use to spark these topics. And so you said in one of your papers, and you've alluded here to, to the fact that no single book can possibly capture the complexity of something like the civil rights movement or even the life of one person like Dr. Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln. But I mean, a lot of the teachers who are teaching this are not experts and parents, you know, I'm not an expert unless you're a historian. Most parents are probably not experts 
experts. How can they sort of introduce this, uh, these ideas in a more realistic way? And I want to tell you a bit about how this played out recently at my house. It was Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday a few weeks ago, and my preschooler's class read a couple of books about him at school. And she came home and she was really excited to tell me about this guy called Martin Luther King, who was very friendly and he had a lot of love and he liked to spread that love all over and somebody killed him. And I was slightly unhappy with this glossed over version of the story. So I had actually gotten a book out of the library specifically for the occasion and I pulled it out. And so the book talked about the social segregation of schools and drinking fountains. And I was very explicit about how people with skin color like mine made rules about what people with dark colored skin can do. And then the next day, I read your paper that talked about how most books about the civil rights movement focus on this social segregation and not the more insidious political and economic segregation. And also that the majority of the books about the movement don't explicitly identify the perpetrators of segregation. And so I looked again at the book I picked out and I saw that it said, once there was a law in some places that said only white people could sit in front of the bus. And once there were laws in some places that said African-Americans could only use certain restaurants and drinking fountains. And it never mentioned where these laws came from or who originated yeah. them. And, and I got my hands on one of the books that was read in my daughter's class. And the difference in skin tone and even hair type between the black and the white characters is almost imperceptible. <laughs> you basically yeah. couldn't tell which one was which. And it was full of language like they, meaning the black people, refused to ride in buses that made black people sit in the back. And I'm thinking, did the bus make this rule <laughs> and enforce it? And this is a book published by Scholastic, which is a major publisher in, in uh, schools. And so perhaps I shouldn't be too surprised. So, you know, I'm trying hard. I got this book out of the library. I made a point of having this conversation. And then afterwards I realized... I'm not doing enough here. I'm not covering the right topics and the books that she's reading are not covering the right topics. So are there books I can read that cover this accurately or are there sort of a set of books that if I get them all <laughs> that we can get this picture, how can I get my head around this? Well, there's good news and bad news. Mm. The good news is you're doing a lot and you should be commended because the act, you know, it's kind of like the path to exercise is your first step. Okay. The, okay. the path to health is your first step. It's a wonderful thing that what you're doing and making other, other adults, whether you want to use the phrase woke or just aware, mm. it's wonderful. And I applaud that. And the second thing is, and this is for me, cause I'm not a historian, I specialize in social studies education, particularly history education, but I'm not a historian. When it comes to what they know, and I'd encourage everybody to check yourself, okay, and to recognize like, hey, I don't know everything, but I'd love to hear from people who do. Lots and lots of historians have podcasts, and there's wonderful resources that are out there. When it comes to the civil rights movement, teaching tolerance, which is, it is like Dyson is to vacuums, like Crayola <laughs> is to crayons, like Apple is to technology. Teaching tolerance is a wonderful thing for parents and teachers. It is remarkable. Mm -hmm. And they've got uh, two resources that really stand out. Just using these phrases, if, if you were to put them in quotes on Google, teaching hard history. It's about how to teach the American chattel slavery, teaching hard history. It's a wonderful resource where it talks about, hey, these are 10 themes that, that you want to pay attention to. I'm not saying that every time you talk with the kids, you need to talk about every one of these 10 themes, but these are things you need to be aware of. 
And when it comes to the civil rights movement called uh, teaching the movement or putting the movement back in civil rights, those are different projects by teaching tolerance, which is outstanding. And these are wonderful things that will let you know what you're unaware of. It's kind of like being aware of your own ignorance, you know, and as a non-historian, I'm absolutely aware of my own blind spots and I try to be, and I try to be very deferential. And this is, you're talking about the back of the bus. If people knew what the back of the bus was for Rosa Parks, they would see that the issue isn't where they're sitting. It's not the physical location on the back of the bus because mm-hmm. that's just the indignity of having to walk farther back. Buses back then had two entrances. You'd pay in the front and white folks would get on in the front. African-Americans would get on in the front and pay in the front, but then they'd have to get off and go on the back. Yeah. And sometimes the bus driver, specifically James Blake, the guy who Rosa Parks tried to get ticked off so that she tried to get arrested when Often, folks like James Blake, the bus drivers, would drive away after they paid before they could get on the back. Or in different cities like Montgomery, Alabama, they had certain places like if you were to divide your your town into north and south, if the white section was the north, they would stop at every corner in the north. And in the south, they would just stop at the main spot, one spot for African-Americans and every corner for (laughs) European-Americans. It wasn't just about the back of the bus. Mm-hmm. It was all of the indignities. And with Rosa Parks, nothing against Rosa Parks. I love her. She's awesome. She, it was just her birthday a couple of days ago, and I posted on Twitter about her. She's a great lady. But Joanne Robinson, this lady that history has long forgotten, she was the one that was writing letters years before Rosa was arrested. She was the one that initiated all this stuff long before anyone knew about Rosa getting arrested. She was the one that wrote the leaflets while Rosa was in jail, initiating the Montgomery bus boycott. It wasn't just about Rosa. And it certainly wasn't about Martin Luther King. Not trying to throw shade on that guy, but it was more about Joanne Robinson and all that she did. And it wasn't just about the back of the bus. Now, as parents, the first step is to just recognize that there's a darn good chance that you don't know everything about this topic. Because what you were taught as a five or 15 year old was probably pretty limited. And your memory of what you taught as a five (laughs) or 15 year old is even more limited. Mm -hmm. That's the first step. The second step is to see what's out there and searching things like teaching tolerance and through teaching hard history or uh, teaching the movement. They're wonderful ways to explore these topics on what you don't know. And then the idea of finding extra sources whether it's multiple trade books. You get a trade book on Rosa Parks and one on Martin Luther King. The Martin Luther King biographies rarely mention Rosa Parks, although they'll mention the Montgomery bus boycott. They won't mention Rosa Parks. Mm -hmm. You get the Rosa Parks books, and of course they mention the Montgomery (laughs) bus boycott, and they mention Martin Luther King, but they don't you know, they give credit to Rosa and Martin, but they don't give so much credit to, to Joanne Robinson. And you very rarely find any Martin Luther King books that give credit to Joanne Robinson, but they all give credit to the Montgomery bus boycott, which Joanne Robinson initiated. Mm. And all of the Martin Luther King books talk about this was his entry into the American public eye. You know, you get multiple books like this. You get multiple books like this and you have the kids read multiple books from different angles on the same topic. I tell parents and teachers, it's like when you buy a car, you sit in the driver's seat, but you also open the trunk and the hood and you ask questions about gas mileage. The same way can be done for the Montgomery bus boycott. 
a biography on Rosa Parks, a biography on Dr. Martin Luther King, and a biography on civil rights. The latter may mention the names Joanne Robinson. You know, and when you look at resources like Teaching Tolerance, they'll prompt you with these things. And they also have wonderful podcasts like yours with your parenting mojo that go along with us. In a way, think of this, if I could, and I try to use metaphors a lot in my own teaching and my research. Think about this with dinosaurs, okay? And think about, or planets. Okay. There's a lot of parents that think that Pluto's a planet. And we all, I mean, we all <laughs> grieve. I was taught that Pluto is a planet. <laughs> I know. Same here. It's like this idea of Brontosaurus. I mean, it was the helpful giant gi- dinosaur. <laughs> and now Brontosaurus is, I don't know, Brachiosaurus or Apatosaurus or something mm-hmm. like that. But what if you were to get three different books on any one of those topics? What if you were to get an older book from the 1950s? Your mm-hmm. library's got them. Mm-hmm. And Pluto's a planet and Brontosaurus is the dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And then you get a more recent one and they explain why they're not. Yeah. They explain why they're not. And what if, take the dinosaur thing, what if there's one book that just explores five different dinosaurs, okay? And say they explore it in detail. And I'm just talking things for, say, a kindergartner. You got one book that explores five different dinosaurs. Now you got another book that explores, you know, say it covers 20 dinosaurs, but say the first book just has pteranodons and the second book has pteranodons and pterodactyls. Think about that. When you're doing this, when you have multiple books, it's kind of like when you're purchasing a car, you know, and you're looking at it from multiple angles. It's the same thing with these books. And don't think, hey, can I buy three different books about Rosa Parks? You know, although there will be some gradations, it's kind of like, you know, organizing gradations of the color gray as opposed to a book about Martin, a book about Rosa, a book about civil rights. And it's like looking at black and white and blue. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. The more sources you have. And then when you can add extra historical documents, particularly photographs, they're so accessible for kids. They're mm-hmm. so accessible. And parents will have a very easy time comparing and contrasting because the books are intended. They're engaging and they're intended for young children. You know, mm-hmm. and the photographs, everyone can access that. Yeah. So I just want to sort of summarize what I think I heard. I think what parents can do is to download this uh, teaching hard history curriculum, and I'm, I'm going to put links to this in the references. And that kind of gives you a framework for yes. what should be included, what, what are the important things to cover. And then when you get your series of books and your pictures, you can talk about what is included, which of the topics that we know are important are talked about here, which ones are not talked about here, how are they talked about differently. And you can use then the, you know, the books and the photographs and sort of form your own ideas about not just the events themselves, but how those things are depicted. Absolutely. And that right there, that last part is the nature of historiography. That's not a term that a lot of parents, you know, use very frequently, but history isn't just what happened. Right. History is what we think about what happened. Take September 11th in New York City, you know, or in in Washington, D.C. I mean, the world changed on that day, Mm -hmm. you know, and the idea of how do we interpret certain things the present impacts our understandings on the past yeah, and the idea of looking at it from multiple perspectives, but not just say a white perspective and a black perspective, but the idea of, you know, looking at one event from various historical figures and their contributions to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading somewhere that textbooks that discuss Lincoln published during the Bush administration were very different. <laughs> In terms oh of gosh, their yeah. stance and content compared to books published, I guess probably before, but certainly after. <laughs> 
It is remarkable what's still out there. The eighth grade Georgia textbook very recently said something like the only uh, description on the middle passage was a statement like, and I'm, I'm going to quote this directly, mm-hmm. laborers were brought from <laughs> yes. Africa to work on the southern plantations. Yeah. That is a direct quote. Are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that is like 2015. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? It is remarkable. Yes. The garbage that's out there that parents and teachers and administrators don't know how insidious it is and how wrong it is. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, (laughs) Moving on a little bit. I think that in some ways, teachers have a bit of an easier time with this than parents because if it's on the curriculum, they've sort of got to teach it. And maybe that's hard in some ways because it's like, if I don't want to teach it, I still have to. But in other ways, they have to do it. But I find as a parent... I'm trying to find a balance between following my daughter's lead on these topics and letting her lead. And so I wanted to follow up on something that I had asked Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, because when we talked with her, I mentioned how I've been deliberately getting books out of the library featuring diverse characters. And I found that my daughter will actually refuse to choose the ones with characters who don't have white skin on the cover for her bedtime stories. And so I asked Dr. Tatum about what she thought I should do about this and whether I should insist on reading all the books that I choose from the library. And she came down on the side of not doing that, that I should take the lead from my daughter's questions as they come up. And she gave the example of her son looking at brown eggs and white eggs and wondering if they were different on the inside and using that as a teachable moment. But my problem with this is that these topics don't come up that much if I don't bring them up unless I have NPR on the radio and that sort of gives (laughs) me an opening to discuss these things, which is how these conversations start at our house these days. But on the flip side of that, I don't want the vast majority of our interactions about black people to be about how much people who have skin color like mine have done them wrong, because then I feel like that's going to make the avoiding problem worse. So I'm wondering how you approach this with your children and what you think I should do. Should I lead or should I follow her questions? Well, first, I think you got great advice. And I think the right approach is to ask yourself and to reflect Mm -hmm. because there's times where it's a teachable moment. You're like, oh, yes, oh, yes, yes, yes. Now we are talking about this now. And then there's other times where it's like, "Eh, maybe not so much. Mm -hmm. You know, there's ways that you can introduce it. Take the idea of the book, The Sneetches by Dr. Seuss. Like there's ways that you can introduce it. You know, and that's, it's not as obvious as a book about, say, Rosa Parks. Mm -hmm. There are ways that you can, you know, inconspicuously introduce it. But I also understand the point like, hey, you don't want to beat him over the head with this. And I strongly advocate that when it comes to talking about African Americans, especially for white teachers and white parents, this should not be just about them in the victim status. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with Native Americans. They are not a relic of the past. Mm They were in the past and they were here long before us, but they are not only a relic of the past. African-Americans, when it comes to how they're traditionally taught during Black History Month, it's in the victim status. And I wouldn't revel in the victim status. You know, and I'm not saying ignore the victimhood that they've that's been forced on them. I'm not saying dismiss it or let's talk about other things so we can all be unified. I'm not encouraging that at all. But the idea of, hey, you should be aware. And I think what you're talking about, I I think all parents wonder, you know, during the day you're doing your best to uh, 
keep them away from germs and to keep them healthy and not bleeding. And then at night you're thinking, gosh, what should I have done? Parenting so often is about worrying, did I do the right thing? Or could I have done something better? Parenting is a lot about guilt. And I don't want parents to feel guilty because you can't cover everything. It'll get covered. You've got many, many years with them. It doesn't all have to be covered on Tuesday. Mm. It can't be covered on Tuesday. But I think the parents should find ways to spark dialogue at times um, and at other times respond to their questions with important tangents. If the tangents lead them in this way, go for it. I don't think that every day, all day should be an inundation of race-based complications, you know, but I also don't think it can be ignored. And I certainly don't think it should be minimized. Like, well, that used to happen, but we don't do that anymore. (laughs) Now African-Americans can sit wherever they want on the bus, (laughs) you know, it needs to be more. And this is where, when it comes to parents and teachers, use your judgment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Use your judgment. There is this real tendency in the books, particularly to sort of make it seem as though, oh, everything's better now right? People can sit wherever they like on the bus. They can swim in whatever pool they like. They can drink out of whatever fountain they like. And it's harder, I think, to learn about and teach about the ways that racism and prejudice permeate our lives these days than it is to talk about those more concrete things. Absolutely. Scholars of literature and social studies education would call that chronological ethnocentrism, thinking we're better than folks in the past because we don't do that now. And so often it's easy to identify, look, slavery ended. It ended 150 years ago. You know, we don't we don't do that now. So get over it. And I would never do that. I would never have slaves. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That was the sort of thing. And yeah. Yeah. And it's it's wrong. That's you know, there are ways that people are mistreated. And that's why the idea of moving beyond the phrase slavery you know, moving into things like marginalization, because the reality is there are folks that are being marginalized today. Mm -hmm. There are folks that are being unnecessarily regulated today, you know, and a lot of this is carryover from that, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think the idea of having these discussions now when they come up in age appropriate ways, you know, but also not avoiding it, I think it's important. So I'm more of a fan of let it come up, Mm -hmm. but I also think there's times for a deliberate catalyst. Mm -hmm. If it's Tuesday night and your kids are in bed and you're thinking to yourself, man, I wish I would have said this. Mm -hmm. There are ways to spark that, you know, whether in inconspicuous ways, like with the Sneetches or in other ways too, like, Hey, I was thinking about something that happened yesterday. I specialize more in in history education, but as a parent of three kids, one of the things that I often say that, you know, and the idea of recognizing, Hey, I'm human. I make mistakes. And because I'm human and make mistakes, I also apologize. And I also try to do better. The idea of saying something like, have you ever wished you said something differently than the way you said it? Like you're going to bed at night and you're like, man, I wish I didn't say that. (laughs) Well, yesterday something happened. And after thinking about it at night, I wish that I could have gone back and done this. Mm -hmm. I wish I could have said that. My children have all responded very well to that. Mm -hmm. It shows that you're human, you know, and it shows, it shows that you're being accountable and it recognizes reflectivity, you know, and you take, I mean, kindness is important. Being diligent is important. But parents also want kids to be aware and to be reflective, like, hey, how could I do a better job? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think I think at times when parents feel the guilt, bring it back the next day and see if there's a way that you can point it out to the children. Yeah. You know? 
a powerful lesson for the child on so many fronts as well. <laughs> I think so. Not just the immediate so. subject matter, but also, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all fallible and we all have a chance to go back and make things right. So, yeah. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I just want to sort of reference something you've alluded to a few times and that's the Sneetches, the book. And I wasn't familiar <laughs> with it before you introduced me to it and, and I read it and the angle that I want to talk about is about simulations. And if, if you haven't read the Sneetches, it's basically a children's book about the Jane Elliott green-eyed, blue-eyed, uh, sort of exercise where you make one half of the children superior to the other half and, and then kind of see what happens. And you had directed me to the Southern Poverty Law Center's website and there was a really useful resource in one place on their site where they really lament the dearth of evidence on the effectiveness of these kinds of simulation teaching methods where... I mean, it, it almost seems to me that, that teachers use simulations because they're uncomfortable having a discussion, <laughs> whereas a simulation is scripted. Yeah. And yet in another place on the Southern Poverty Law Center's website, they recommend a class simulation around Dr. Seuss's book, The Sneetches. <laughs> and so I'm just curious as to your ideas on the effectiveness of simulations as a way of teaching about race, or would the kind of series of readings and images and conversations that we've been talking about be a more difficult way to address these topics, but ultimately more effective. <laughs> when it comes to role play and simulations, I always encourage people and parents and teachers to think, how does your kid respond to an iPad or a computer? You know, the way it mesmerizes and you're like, man, that's awesome. They're so engaged. <laughs> but then in the back of your mind, you're also thinking to yourself, all right, I need to, I need to get them off that. <laughs> You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In a way, role play and simulations, it's kind of like going to the zoo where parents can take their parenting hat off and yeah. teachers can take their teaching hat off and just let it go. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's a horrible thing, but it can be. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like dessert. You know, you don't want too much of that. As it relates to Jane Elliott's brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiment, I mean, it was iconic. Mm -hmm. It was iconic. And it was a, she started it in Little Riceville, Iowa, in 1968, soon after either Martin Luther King or Bobby Kennedy was killed. I think Bobby was killed first and then Martin Luther King was killed second. And that's when she, you know, and because Bobby was running on a desegregation platform and civil rights platform, I think there was a lot of dialogue um, in between that. And she was thinking about doing this. Then she tried a couple of years later, it was captured on like CBS or something. I mean, it was an iconic image, but the reality is that a lot of folks, a lot of experts in the field of educational psychology um, and education in general are very concerned about it. Mm -hmm. There's groups on all campuses called institutional review boards, mm -hmm. which they make sure that research that's done with human subjects or animals, it's all ethical. You know, you're not teaching the orphans to stutter, which is an example of horrible things that happened um, in the 1940s in Iowa, where a group of people tried to get orphans to stutter so that they could teach them to unstutter if they, it's a horrible, unethical stuff. But there's a lot of institutional review boards across the state that wouldn't pass Jane Elliott's brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiments mm -hmm. in a classroom today. And that's because they're incredibly problematic because they can spin wildly out of control especially with things that can't be changed, like brown eyes and blue eyes. Mm. Lots of times teachers try to get around it like, oh, you know, I'll make people wear badges. We'll make people wear badges and that'll prove, you know, and the people with the badges are good and the people without the badges are bad. But still, teachers can't always control what happens in the locker room. Mm-hmm. 
before PE or what happens on the playground during recess. You know, simulations can be effective, but sometimes they can be way too effective where kids get really good at being really bad. You know, and it's kind of like back to the physician's Hippocratic Oath. They promise to do no harm. You know, I think it's great guidance for teachers. What can I do to, you know, it's kind of like athletes that are training. They're thinking, how do I get better at sports? But they're also thinking, how do I avoid injuries? Mm -hmm. You know, and the idea of, and here's just a couple examples, you know, where teachers, perhaps they'll say they're well-intended, but they're not. When teachers have had kids lay on their bellies so that other kids could walk on their backs to simulate the middle, middle passage or squishing them under chairs so they knew what it felt like to be cramped during the middle passage. I mean, one, that's nothing like the middle passage. <laughs> and two, it's just being cruel. And the kid that's standing on somebody else's back or watching other kids get squished, it's ludicrous. Mm -hmm. you know. But these are actual examples. Now, some teachers may say these are well-intended or they're well-planned, but Jane Elliott recreations are very problematic. You don't know what a kid experienced the night before. Mm -hmm. There's some child that witnessed their mom getting knocked down the stairs by their dad. Some kid has called the cops on their dad who's banging on the door trying to get inside, and his mom's got an order of protection. There's children that have traumatic events and the teacher may be unaware of it, especially at parenting. It's different. But with children in the classroom, teachers don't always know what's going on. And the next thing is it's impossible to recreate a historical era and to capture the indignities and inhumanities of a marginal life, a marginalized life in the span of like 30 minutes. Oh, we've got 30 minutes. Okay, <laughs> kids, now we're done with the middle passage. Let's move on. Yeah. I'm being sardonic, but it's impossible. It's impossible to try to recreate a historical era. You know, you can't reduce the Underground Railroad to a game of tag. They can't experience that. They can learn about it, but they can't experience it. And I think teachers need to recognize that. Now, simulations are popular, but they're also very problematic. Another thing that I would encourage parents and teachers to consider very carefully is when it comes to common tasks like creative writing. Creative writing is wonderful and it's very beneficial and it's a part of, you know, all the major disciplinary bodies for English and reading and language arts all encourage problematic writing. But often people are asked, say, instead of playing tag to simulate the Underground Railroad, teachers are thinking, well, I can't do that. But what if I were to give my kids a writing activity where they have to think about what if they were on the Middle Passage or what if they were a patty roller? That was the nickname for patrollers on the Middle Passage to catch them. Maybe I could have the kids write creatively since they can't experience it. Often creative writing is a substitute. Now, I'm not discouraging creative writing, but I don't think children should recreate the mental landscape of a slave catcher or a master or an overseer or an antagonist in the civil rights movement like the police chief Bull Connor that turned the hoses on peaceful protesters. You know, I don't think that people should think about, I don't think that teachers or parents should ask kids to explore, okay, the dude who said, yes, yeah, sick the dogs on them. Sick the dogs on those people that are walking peacefully over the bridge near Selma. Mm -hmm. I don't think that 10-year-olds should be tasked with trying to recreate that mental landscape. I think teachers should carefully consider subjugation as suffering should never be trivialized and the abuser's role should not be toyed with. Students of color, particularly African-American kids, may feel unease at recreating 
an enslaved person's voice and experience. And think about it. You think there's an African-American kid sitting next to a white kid and the white kid's like, hey, man, what if my grandparents enslaved your grandparents? Mm -hmm. I mean, now that white kid's sitting there just what if and like, what if I play in the NBA someday? But that African-American kid that has to listen to that garbage, Mm -hmm. he's not going to experience that simple sentence in the same way. You know, and I think the teachers should be very careful about the tasks that they give and should use empowering language like this is our opportunity to give a voice to the often ignored and the the trampled on people in history. But we need to be very mindful. We need to be very mindful of the people that were marginalized. And now we're recreating people, you know. We're going to explore dialogue from folks down south. And yes, they did talk a little differently. And African-Americans, you can actually, on the Library of Congress, you can listen to oral histories of former slaves where you can actually hear their voices and saying to the kids, now we're going to listen to them, but we're not going to snicker. This was the way they talked. And we're not going to make fun of them because that's not a sign of ignorance. That's just how they talked, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't think that teachers or parents should assign creative writing tasks where kids are trying to impersonate this because in a way it's almost like literary blackface, Mm. you know, and I, I think there's a fine line between trying to write in authentic ways and literary blackface. And I think these are worrisome elements that can be avoided if teachers weren't to assign that much like simulations. Mm -hmm. Simulations are a big concern because you can't control all the variables. Yeah. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. So I really think we're coming back to these, you know, books and photographs and sort of frameworks as as a positive way that parents can use uh, these resources to teach about these difficult topics. And so I, I'm hoping to work with you to pull together a list <laughs> of these kinds of resources if you're amenable to that to post on the references sure. for this episode. Absolutely, okay. and I'll tell you too. I'm on the in an advisory group for the Southern Poverty Law Center that funds the Teaching Tolerance Project. Mm -hmm. And they're coming out with an elementary framework for teaching American chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. It should be out, I think, sometime in February or early March. Before this episode goes live then. So we'll definitely get to that. And it's the same thing with uh, uh, putting the movement back in civil rights, Mm -hmm. that whole thing. There's a ton of great books that are suggested. Also at the very back of my usually in the appendices for my research where I, I just have a lot of dots and things. Okay. These books had it. These books didn't have it. Mm-hmm. You know, parents can absolutely check out their books and see what they've got going on. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I would love to help out with that. Super. Thanks. Yeah. And so it would be much easier than using the tables that you mentioned in your work to see, okay, this one covers these five topics, but not this one. So I'm going to get this other book that does cover that and, and get a more balanced yes. view. So yeah. Yes. super. Well, thank you. I, I look easy. forward to working with you on that. So we are out of time. Sure. <laughs> it's such a fascinating conversation. And I wish we could keep going. We didn't quite get to all of our questions, but uh, I know we need to go. So thank you, Dr. Bickford, for taking the time to do this. And I really feel as though I have a better path forward now in terms of engaging my daughter on this, not overwhelming her, but following her lead and, and also leading on occasion. So really appreciate your taking the time to help us with this. It was my privilege. So uh, references for today's episode, for all of the resources that we've talked about, as well as the things I'm going to pull together with Dr. Bickford can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash teaching race. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to seven parenting myths that we can leave behind. 
and join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group for more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you. I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.